Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode seven of the Just Capable podcast. Today I'm talking with Dr. Lauren Cook on mental health, therapy, coaching, speaking, and how you can lead a happier life. Dr. Cook, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. Thrilled to be here. We first got connected via Clubhouse, as many connections are formed these days, and I'm really glad to get to share this space with you today. Yeah, Clubhouse is is just the spot. Now, I always like to lead off with an interesting question, and my question for you today is, when did you realize that you were a cat person, and how many cats do you own? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so... I only have one cat at a time. That's kind of a policy I have. And for truly selfish reasons, because if you've ever had more than one cat, you know that they become best friends with each other and not necessarily best friends with you. And me being a little selfish, I love my cat to love me. <laughs> I realize how I sound truly like a crazy cat lady right now. Um, but I have a little Siamese named Mochi. He definitely makes appearances on my Instagram at Dr. Lauren Cook. And uh, other fun fact is I have only had Siamese cats my whole life. So you know how you kind of get attached to a breed sometimes. Um, Siamese cats are my thing. So he's sitting by me right now. We'll see if he chimes in at all today. Siamese are chatty sometimes. Um, but I love Mochi so much. He brings me a lot of joy. Nice. Yeah, I'm a Border Collie guy. So I've had a lot of Border Collies. Um... Yeah, throughout my life. <laughs> you know, you know. Yeah. Growing up on a ranch, we had a lot of different animals. And of course, you have to have cats on a ranch. And they're extremely useful when they're mm -hmm. when they're put to work. And I could see how they make good companions for people as well. They do. They do. I love Border Collies and Shelties, though. That's a, those are great breeds as well. Yeah. Sometimes they're too smart for their own good, though. <laughs> Same with Siamese. Same with Siamese. So growing up in California and... When did you first tap into your, let's say your, you know, for lack of a better term, your gift for therapy and the kind of work that you went into in college? When did you figure out like, yes, I'm good. When I go to school, this is what I want to be. Honestly, it started when I was in college myself. So I went to UCLA for undergrad in LA and honestly thought I maybe wanted to work in the entertainment industry in some way. I grew up kind of acting and performing and really enjoyed that and thought maybe I want to do something in entertainment journalism or, you know, I worked at, at Disney and NBC News for a little while and E! News. But I have to tell you, Dan, talking about what Justin Bieber wore every day, it got just a little bit old. Um, and, you know, all that glamour of the industry um, from the outside looking in, actually getting a chance to be in those rooms, you know, no, no rudeness or disrespect to people who work in those industries. It's very important. But for me personally and my values, I wasn't feeling fulfilled in that space. And, you know, I know one of my core values is helping other people. And so I knew, okay, the journey is not over yet. I really want to be in a space where I can get beyond the small talk with people. I can go deeper. Um, and that's when I started speaking publicly. That's when I started thinking about entering the field as a therapist. 
And it's honestly been the best decision I could have ever made. Um, people often will say, oh my gosh, it must be so hard to be a therapist and people sharing you know, their deepest, darkest secrets and their pains in their life. But if anything, it's made me so much more hopeful for the human race because I see on a daily basis how resilient my clients are, how we can overcome trauma. And I wish every person could see what happens inside a therapy room because I think we'd all really see just how incredibly strong and capable we all are, especially after we've gone through hardships in our lives. Yeah. So most therapists that I know that I went to college with, they usually stop around the time of the master's and then they start working on their certifications so they can uh, get into the civilian workplace and get going. What made you to, what led you to take it a step further in getting your doctorate? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's so true. I got my master's in marriage and family therapy and thought, well, do I want to keep going? But for me, I ultimately did want to continue because uh, I really enjoy speaking. I really enjoy teaching. I enjoy doing assessment, which is something that often differentiates the doctoral level from the master's level, um, where we can assess for things like dementia, ADHD, um, if someone's capable to stand trial, all those kind of fun, interesting assessments. And so I knew, all right, I, I want to get some more training. And I'm really glad I did. It was a, a long, long road ahead. Um, but I think the training that I got at the doctoral level was so incredible from so many professionals. And of course, at the master's level, too, you get incredible training as well, uh, just different kind of training sometimes. So it's been really nice to incorporate my marriage and family therapy degree with more of the clinical work as well. Well, I also think the audience should know that you graduated with your bachelor's from UCLA, but tell me more about you where you went for your doctorate, because that's nothing to shake a stick at. <laughs> well, I honestly get a lot of heat from, for my master's because I went to USC. And if you know the rivalry, UCLA-USC, my husband, who's also a Bruin, will still not let me live that one down. Um, and I am Bruin born and bred through and through. Um, but I got my doctorate at Pepperdine. And sadly, everyone thinks, you know, it's on the beautiful Malibu campus. But at the doctoral level, we're at the Pepperdine office right by LAX airport. So much less of a beautiful view, but such an amazing place to get my doctorate. Truly incredible clinicians. And honestly, some of the best practicum experience I could have asked for. Well, at least being out by LAX, you're closer to the beach life, Santa Monica and you know, the other parts of the beaches there. So, I mean, there's a, there is a little bit of a trade-off at least. That's true. It's not all bad. And apparently, you know, my graduation was this past May, but obviously with the pandemic, it didn't happen. Uh, we'll see if it happens this May. I'm a little skeptical, honestly, but that one's supposed to be at the Malibu campus. So I'm hoping my family can maybe come see that and maybe think that's where I actually went to school on that beautiful campus. Nice. Now, you said that you were living in San Diego, and then you just recently moved to Pasadena, which is a great place. And mm -hmm. I believe you made that move during the pandemic, correct? We did. We did. Yeah. So with everything being locked down and that, that life transition, which it's a big difference between San Diego to Pasadena, what spurred that decision for yourself was it about your own was it for work or was it about your own you know mental happiness and being in the right place for you and your family yeah yeah so the last year of your doctoral training we get matched for an internship site i always tell people it's similar to uh, when you're going to residency in medical school and you have your big match day 
we have the same thing for psychologists. And so I ended up getting matched at University of San Diego in their student counseling center. I absolutely loved it there. Some of the best people to work with. University of San Diego is a beautiful campus with great students. But I knew it was only going to be for a year. And, you know, my home and my heart is in L.A. My family's here. Our friends are here. So I think we really went into our San Diego journey knowing that it was just going to be for a year. It was not easy trying to get a house during the pandemic. I will tell you that. That's probably an understatement, honestly. Um, but it just goes to show, you know, when you really set your mind to something, it doesn't always happen. But certainly putting in that effort on a daily basis, I'm really glad that we were actually able to make that dream come true to get our first home uh, in Southern California in L.A. It wasn't easy, but um, really glad that we were able to make that happen. Yeah. And when I look over the course of your career in your academics, I just see someone who just has kept going the extra mile and has not stopped going the extra mile because you didn't just stop there. You're speaking and you're also authoring books. And how scary was that to do your first book? And what led you to go into writing and also public speaking? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I honestly feel like writing the second book in some ways was scarier because I think when you're just starting out as an author, you don't always know what you don't know. And so that fearlessness that sometimes you have, you just go with it. Uh, and I think especially in my late teens, early 20s, I just had such a sense of fearlessness of like, hey, let me give this a shot. Like, I want to write my own book. Let's make it happen. You know, when when I was working at, at Disney and I remember being in the same room with Ann Sweeney, president of ABC, I, hey, I'm going to go up and talk to her. Um, and I think as you get older, sometimes you're like, oh, should I have done that? Um, but I really try and hold on to that sense of fearlessness that I had in my early 20s. And so, you know, my first book that I wanted to write, uh, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with The Happiness Project by Gretchen Rubin. Um, it's a bestseller. And when I was 18 in my dorm room bunk bed, I emailed her and was like, oh, Miss Rubin, like, I'd love to write a teen edition of The Happiness Project with you. And Dan, of course, she was like, yeah, I'm not interested. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Good luck. Um, and so I'm like, okay, well, I'll write my own book. And so I decided to get that published, The Sunny Side Up. And um, I find that, you know, having a book is such a great calling card with speaking. That really got me a lot of my first gigs. And, you know, it's been a, a nice snowball from there. I, I love getting to do speaking. And it's obviously all gone virtual now. I'm excited to get back to in person. Um, but, you know, hey, if I could be like, 50% of Brene Brown and the work that she gets to do speaking and writing and researching, that's, that's kind of the dream I'm going for. Yeah, when it comes to people who have, you know, any kind of celebrity status whatsoever, I always try to remember that they're human beings too. And yes. they're, they're driven by the same human things that everyone else is driven by. So if you don't expect them to be anything but human. And mm -hmm. sometimes rejection is the biggest favor someone can give you because by her rejecting you that allowed you to write with your own voice and you don't mm -hmm. you don't you don't have to thank anyone for your hard work and you don't have to share the spotlight with anyone because you went out and made it happen after that person rejected you and i look mm -hmm. at rejection as motivation myself i couldn't agree more dan like let it be the fire that fuels you you know not not the hose that drowns you out but there's a lot of people who would let something like a rejection 
affect their mental health and drag them down and they don't know how to come away from that. And I think people need to learn resiliency in their life and go through some struggles because that makes you better later on in your life. If you know nothing but success, mm -hmm. you're going to struggle so much more badly later in life when you do eventually run into rejection. Yeah, I so agree with that. And, you know, for my clients that have had just this hunky dory, easy breezy life, I find that sometimes their anxiety can be the highest because they start becoming so afraid and scared of, oh my gosh, how am I going to cope when that day does come where I lose a loved one or I don't get my dream job? How am I going to cope through that? Now, we all know on the other side, like we all have resilience inside of us that's just waiting to be tapped. But I think for people who have gone through failure, who are really showing up for their lives, they know they can get through anything and that those failures, those challenges are just making them stronger. So I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. I think it's spot on true. Well, let's play a, a what if game real quick. So let's say your foot, your first book had not have been received so well. Do you think that you would have had the fortitude to go ahead with the second book? Or do you think you would have maybe not written that second book if it hadn't been received very well? Mm. I think it is so easy, especially when we're debuting something to feel like, oh, this wasn't as good as I would want it to be. Is this the universe kind of giving me feedback that I'm not meant to do this? And I do think it is important to take feedback in. Like, I think it's problematic when people um, ignore all feedback and don't use it as a reality check. But I think we can always use feedback to improve ourselves. And if you're truly passionate about doing something, Go for it. It's a skill you can improve. I think there are some crafts in this in this world that, hey, if you're not an amazing singer, there's only so many voice lessons that are going to get you, you know, on the American Idol stage, right? Or the same if you want to be a dancer, a professional athlete. But the majority of, of skills and things that, you know, we want to grow in in our lives, anyone can develop competence in. You know, if anyone wanted to become a therapist or find out more about finances or learn more about how to be an entrepreneur, that's something that's accessible to each of us. We just have to be willing to put in the time, ask the right questions, connect and network with people. So as long as we're willing to take that feedback in, I think it's it's really, like I said, just fuel to make us better at what we hope to do. Yeah. And being a country kid from Texas. It's not about how many times you get bucked off the horse. It's about how many times mm -hmm. you get back on the horse and overcome that fear where you just accept like, hey, it's going to be hard. And so yep. we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. That persistence. I really think that's the difference between the people who make it and don't because we all get those rejections. I actually think rejection is a great indicator that you're showing up, <laughs> you know, rather than staying home. And so I love that saying, just get back up on the horse over and over again. Yeah. So question I have for you. So you obviously are an athletic person and you take care of yourself. Where in California do you like to go and work out? And where in California do you like to go and like center yourself and get yourself you know, mentally back on track if you find yourself being overwhelmed by work? Mm, yeah. I love to hike. Like, I don't know if your listeners are on all trails, but... I love using all trails as a great app to find hikes around me. 
I sometimes have a little competitive streak in me. So I love a good game of tennis. Um, that's something I love to do. And then, you know, I also love to ski. I just got a chance to go up to the mountains and mammoths, which if you're ever in Southern California, check out Mammoth Mountain. It's a great place to go skiing. That is my favorite way to clear my head and just be in the present moment. I love Mammoth. I've been there uh several times over my lifetime and do you have like your go-to cabin up there already picked out oh that's awesome that's awesome my friend and i we have an annual girls trip and i feel like we're in a different cabin and area every time um we've been all over that mountain but it's so so much fun my friend actually got married on the mountain which was really cool to see in the summer not in the snow um but it's a great place love it there do you have do you have your go-to spot yeah, I have my go-to spot, but it's not Mammoth. I actually prefer going up to Yosemite and also Lake Tahoe. Those are kind of like uh, my mountain spots in California. Yeah, I need to go to Lake Tahoe. You, you'll need to let me know after which one, because there's so many resorts in Tahoe. Uh, you know, I like Heavenly for skiing. Mm-hmm. And so then mm-hmm. pretty much anything that is near the uh, ski lift is what I go for. There are some good cabins. Yep. Uh, there's a casino there. And so there's some, there's a lot of good options and, you know, due to the popularity of this podcast, I would hate to overwhelm one of those select destinations. So we'll have to talk offline about the best spot in my opinion. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Now, what, when you go up and you do public speaking, what do you look for in an audience? Are you looking for just a general audience to help people with mental health? Or are you looking for people that have gone through a, serious life experience to help what is your target audience that you're trying to help well i always keep in mind that whether or not someone's disclosing their mental health experiences we know on average that at least one in four people do experience some kind of mental health concern so i know before i walk into any space realistically at least 25 percent of this room is likely going through or has gone through some kind of mental health concern so i always am keeping that in mind you know most of my speaking has been in the college space uh, going on college campuses and talking about mental health suicide prevention how we can talk more openly about our concerns with each other but as i'm getting a little bit older I'm really trying to get more in the corporate space because I see such a need there. Um, Mental health is still honestly largely really absent, I believe, from the conversations that are happening in corporate. And I know for a fact that, you know, the millennial generation and certainly Generation Z as they start coming into the corporate space, they're passionate about mental health. And I think if we don't really start acknowledging that and bringing that into the workforce, I think we're gonna start to see some some potential tensions in the workspace. And so I really, really care about bringing those dialogues into, into the corporate environment. So that's kind of where I'm hoping to head next. Yeah, I need to get you uh, plugged in with Indeed. They're a great local corporation here in Austin that um, definitely, would probably be open to using services like yours. And I would even argue that with Apple, Oracle, Tesla, you know, all the big players, and then the subsequent, you know, support companies that follow on from them moving here, that they should Mm -hmm. have some kind of counseling services in place for people who are transitioning from California to Texas to help them deal with the transition, because that's a lot of stress, you know, new, new place, new environment. And not only is it a lot of stress on you as a person, as an individual, but it's also a lot of stress on your family and your children as well. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think we'll start to see that shift just like how you know, when you attend college, there's a university counseling center. I think many corporations are start going to start having counselors on site for support. Um, you know, I've seen that even with my husband. He's an attorney and, you know, at his firm, they have therapists now that they can go talk to. So I'm hoping that's a trend that we'll really start seeing get in place. Yeah. in in the military, I've got 17 years in now. I've gone in my career wow. from people don't talk about mental health and suicide and things like that openly to mm-hmm. probably about 10 years ago, people could start having those conversations and be more open about their mental health within the service and, you know, with their fellow service members. And I think the culture change that has occurred over the last decade is healthy for military veterans because it's not only good for people who are currently serving, but what I'm seeing is that people who previously served, who are retired or have gotten out, they're starting to be more open now about their mental health uh, struggles that were never considered talked about before, that they're now, they can approach finding a healthy means of treating that. Oh, that is so, so good to hear. I love that. I know a lot of my colleagues have gone to work in the VA and there's incredible research happening with veterans, you know, the effects of EMDR, eye movement therapy, um, mindfulness for veterans. There's so much great research happening in the VAs right now. So I love to hear that. That makes me happy. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is we're seeing people experiment with uh, marijuana use to treat PTSD. We're also seeing people experimenting with uh, mushroom use and psychedelics mm-hmm. to treat PTSD. And from what I can tell from my friends who are going through those therapies is that they're having a lot of success. And I, but I do want to clarify though, that may not be for everyone, but the people that I know who are, have been doing it, they've been having success and everyone's different. Biology's different, every different person and, you know, psychological makeup. But I really am looking forward to seeing the fact, basically I'm just, I'm happy that we're exploring new options that mm-hmm. potentially could have significant impacts. Me too. No, I think it's awesome. And yeah, there's a lot of new research about ketamine and how that can have really rapid effects with depression. So there's a lot of really cool research happening. And and even me personally, you know, I live with my own experience of anxiety. And um, just recently, I started working with a naturopathic doctor and really understanding how supplements, nutrition affects our mental health so much. You know, the field of psychology has often really neglected to incorporate all these other remedies. It's kind of just been, hey, talk therapy and or uh, traditional psychiatry. And I think we're really starting to see more of an integration of a lot of different treatment modalities, which is honestly really cool to see. Well, being a Californian, I would say Anxiety is probably the norm because think about the state that you live in. You've got earthquakes, you've got mm-hmm. tsunamis, you've got major significant natural environmental factors like the forest fires and oh, yeah. all these things that can happen, you know, at any point in time in California. So I think anxiety comes with the territory to include like the traffic and just like the lifestyle and everything else. I think it absolutely does. And I think, you know, the state of California too, especially in Southern California where I am, Let's be real, with the entertainment industry here, there's such a focus on appearances, being beautiful, being young, being famous. Um, Those are often stereotypes projected on LA. And 
honestly, there's a lot of truth to it. And so I think that adds a lot of anxiety for people too. And there's a lot of new research coming out actually about Generation Z in general that they really feel like they have to be successful. Their worth is based in their achievement. And I think that's pretty true of uh, my home bubble in LA as well. Yeah, I think the worst thing that people can do is try and keep up with the Joneses in California. You don't need a Lamborghini to be happy. You don't need to be celebrity, crazy, famous to be happy. There's a lot of things you don't need to be happy. If you can focus on your core priorities, then work your way up from there. And it's all about prioritization, but people get caught up in the lifestyle where they try and keep up and it just they just wind up burning out and crashing and burning, yep. so to speak. Yep. No, a hundred percent true. Dan, put that on a mug because we all need a cup of that. It's really spot on true. Yeah. Well, being a veteran getting shot at, it helps you <laughs> realign your priorities because mm. like you can compare every day to like, okay, was I shot at today? No. Okay. We're cool. And, but there are <laughs> people in this country that, you know, getting shot at every day is a real thing. Like certain neighborhoods of Chicago, you know, Mm-hmm. You could be out, let's be honest, you could be out in the hill country and get shot at. If you step on the wrong ranch, you could get mm-hmm. shot at. So it's it's literally everywhere in different amounts and volumes. And I think that when it comes to mental health, your family is a big part of that chunk. And, you know, I have I have two small children who are going mm-hmm. through, going into school and out of school for mm-hmm. you know, COVID, closing the school or not. And at the very beginning of COVID for the first three months, I saw a drastic decline in my son's mental health because he, uh, he couldn't see his friends. He wasn't getting the stimulation he needed that he would get from school. You know, my wife and I both are trying to work. And so mm-hmm. I went out of my way to be like, okay, you know, it's we're in the month two. I see it, but I'm also hyper aware of it because of some things that have happened in my family in the past. So I am very cognizant mm. that of mental health and mental awareness. And mm-hmm. so I was able to, you know, one, I was like, okay, I've got to get you a tutor to help you with school. I've got mm-hmm. to set up some kind of play date with your friends so you can actually see them and be a kid. And then I've got right. to take you biking and hiking as much as possible and, and just get him out to do things. Mm, that's and, awesome. And it, it, he turned around in a very short period of time. But you could just see on his face, he just was getting real unhappy with the setup. And luckily, I was able to recover. But I think a lot of parents went through that. I think a lot of parents were struggling initially, and they figured out their own way that was best for the family to overcome that. Mm-hmm. No, so true. I think that happened. I, I don't know any family that didn't have a hard time with this past year. And, you know, I mainly work with college students. And... I saw that so much in the students I was working with, too. I mean, talk about a time to be socializing and connecting with your peers. Colleges, that's the time, you know? And so many of them, biggest thing I saw was just a sense of hopelessness of what's the point? When's this going to get better? I don't see a way out of this. And, you know, trigger warning here, but there's the real fact of, you know, we've had some increased suicides this year. Um, Even especially with young kids, kids nine, 10 years old. Um, Las Vegas was just reporting on that actually in the New York Times. And so, Our kids really need support no matter how old they are, whether they're preschool, elementary, all the way to college. This is really impacting our kids for sure. Yeah. And I have a lot of friends whose kids are in college right now. They're in their freshman, sophomore year. What would be your Mm -hmm. best advice for them to, you know, overcoming mental health challenges while they're at school during these times? 
Yeah, two big things I have. One is incorporating a schedule, really making sure, you know, that you're sticking with your plan. I love, I, I think it, you might know who it is better than I am, blanking on his name. Maybe he's a general, but the one who says, make your bed every morning. Have you heard about that? Um, oh, yeah. I believe it's uh, McRaven. Yeah, he exactly. Was a, he was a, uh, he was over here at UT after he retired, but yeah, it's General McRaven. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I love what he says about, hey, get a small accomplishment, start your day, make your bed. And I think making sure that our kids have structure throughout the day, that really helps them stay on track so that they don't feel listless. And then the other thing is get exercise. Our brains and our bodies need that. We know that people become more depressed and anxious when they're not moving and they're just sitting on the couch. So no matter how comfortable you feel going outside right now, put on a mask, if, you know, whatever, if you can't socially distance, but get outside, get that vitamin D. So many people have vitamin D deficiency right now, which increases depression and decreases our immunity. So get outside, get moving. That's going to help you feel a lot better too. That is a great call to action. And to anyone listening to this podcast, get your headphones, go for a run right now because podcasts <laughs> do travel well. Yes, do it, do it. Now, for your family, did you were you raised in a big family or a small family? Just me. I'm an only child, actually. So my parents had me when they were a little older. So it is just yours truly. Nice. And so what I see with families that have like, you know, siblings and multiple siblings, if something significant happens to, you know, a sibling, I see that take a big toll on the rest of the family. And so I've seen <laughs> some families that have lost a sibling and how they've struggled to overcome that because when you lose someone very young in life, it's it's a hard nut to swallow. And mm -hmm. what I've seen with people is generally it takes about two to three years to really come to terms with it. And then mm -hmm. you never get over it. But I see that people find the way forward eventually in their own time. Some people need more time. Some people need less time. But when people are dealing with a family member that in that situation that has, you know, committed suicide and left this world, generally they're just handing their rucksack off to the next person. The, the problems mm -hmm. aren't going to get solved through suicide. Life is not going to get better for anyone without you. So if you're, if you're in the process or considering suicide, don't do it because it's not, yeah. gonna, it's not going to make anyone's life any better. And your family members' lives are much richer with you in it than without. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think, you know, the people that I hope really hear that message, especially too, are our young adults, because we know, you know, the human brain, especially the frontal lobe of your brain, which is like right over your forehead, that part of the brain is all about understanding consequences and what happens after our here and now choices. That doesn't typically finish developing till we're between the ages of 25 and 28. And I think that's a really big thing that we see with teen and young adult suicide is that they're in so much pain on a particular night and they can't see what happens tomorrow. They're not able to see what are the consequences of this choice that I might make to end my life. And so whether you need to write it on a post-it note, call somebody, get help, right? Call the National Suicide Crisis Line. You have to know that the temporary pain that you're in is not going to last forever. Even if it feels hard to see the consequences after, slow yourself down and know that that pain is short term and you will feel better. 
Yeah, and what I've seen in the military, you know, predominantly a lot of people, in, the average age in the military is 23 years old. So a lot of mm. people suffer a significant head injury in the military when they get hit by an IED or mm-hmm. they're in a car accident because they were, you know, driving under the influence or maybe they were just in the wrong place, wrong time and have a car accident. And when mm-hmm. you get damage to, you know, your frontal cortex and that part of your brain, generally what we see is about two to three years, maybe even as long as four years down the road, that is a bracketed timeline of danger because people within Mm. two to three years post-accident, four years post-car accident is when they become the most susceptible to, you know, having that occur in their their brain chemistry or their synapses or whatever you want to call it to where they're Mm -hmm. at high risk for suicide, unfortunately. Yeah. so, So a lot of times when it comes to head injury, it's not the right after that's the most dangerous. It could be years down the road that is more dangerous. Such an important point. Yeah. And I think it's really, really key to make sure you have those supports in place so that the second those suicidal thoughts come up for you, you're sharing it with someone, you're reaching out for support. I think the biggest problem is that people go kind of underground with their suicidal thoughts, whether they minimize it or they feel ashamed of it, whatever it might be. And I think it's really important, even if it feels uncomfortable, to talk about it. Because the more you talk about it, it's not that it normalizes it by any means, but it makes it so much easier to get that support in place early on. Um, so I'm really glad that you're talking about this. Well, speaking about talking about it, let's talk about Name Your Story. Tell me about that book and what mm-hmm. was the, what got you creatively thinking about that title and about that topic for that book? Yeah. So, um, you know, my first book, The Sunny Side Up, it's all about happiness. Like if you Google it and see it on Amazon, I love the book. It's it, it's a feel good book. But, you know, you see me smiling on the cover. My old branding was the sunny girl. Like I talked all about happiness. And I think for a lot of people, that's their jam. But other people, you can like see the eye roll a mile away of like, oh, my gosh, seriously. Um, And I think that's why we're seeing, you know, such a toxic positivity movement conversation happening right now. And so I realized through my work as a therapist and a speaker, people are having a hard time. And not only is it hard to access happiness that feels so far away, it feels hard to just access how to be okay right now. And so I really wanted to write Name Your Story as a way to normalize our psychic pain, if you will. Um, really teach people, hey, how do I talk about if I'm struggling? How do I talk with a loved one if I'm worried about them? What are the signs and symptoms of different things that I should be looking out for? Not as a way to self-diagnose, but as a way to really build awareness. Um, And so, yeah, I I really wanted a hands-on tool book for people. And I think that it's, it's been really helpful for a lot of young adults in particular to give them the the tangible and concrete skills to talk about these things. Have you ever considered uh, modifying your books into children's books? Honestly, I haven't, but I don't know, Dan, maybe I should start thinking about that. I think your brand could carry a line of children's books to address these issues because bringing it back around to talking about uh, children going through COVID, I think there's a, very good opportunity there there for you to help families and children by transitioning these books into children's books to, because I think mental health starts at home. 
it starts mm-hmm. with your it starts with yourself and then it starts with your family if you have a family and mm-hmm. for a lot of parents who are struggling how to broach this topic with their children who not, could be like four or five six years old you know going on up to 15 there might be a really good opportunity for you to be of assistance to those families by tackling that format what are your thoughts on that Oh, I love that. That's definitely something I'm going to have to mull over. Um, I'm normally not a child psychologist. I usually don't work too, too much with kids, but I really do take a systems approach in the sense that, you know, it's not just our mental health personally, it's how the mental health of our family, of our friends, we all impact each other. We all kind of have a contagious energy that we give to each other, if you will. And so, you, I, I'm going to have to think on that. I really appreciate that you're that you're bringing that up because uh, that could be a really helpful resource to a lot of families, I would hope. Yeah, I think uh, there's definitely some potential there. And with your body of work, uh, might it might actually work. I think you've got the brand that could support it. And uh, let me you. ask let me ask you this. So this is the point of podcast, which is I call the call to action part of it. Is there anyone out there that you'd like to work with or collaborate with, bring team, so to speak? Ooh, what a great question. Well, I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm so into Brene Brown. Like, I really do love her work. She's um, honestly a really big idol and mentor to me. But really, anyone in the corporate space right now, it's something I'm hungry to, to build more experience in. Um, and I also am, I'm looking for that, perfect person. Well, I won't say perfect person, but I am looking for that person to work with and coach with. Um, I coach a lot of people and I believe every coach should have a coach. So if anyone's listening to this today, that's like, oh, I want to work with Lauren and help her level up. um, I'm all for that because I really believe that you know, even the best athletes and the best performers, they all have coaches. And I really think each and every one of us needs a coach of some kind in our lives. The tech industry needs a lot of work with a lot of their programmers. They have a lot of um, mental health issues and the tech world is, is very hard on people, but there's many, many industries that need assistance. And mm-hmm. you, know, you just have to pick the one that's open and receptive to your format and your brand. And I think you could really knock it out of the park no matter who you wind up working with. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I'm, I'm really excited about it. We'll see, we'll see what's next in the trajectory for me. Other question I have for you as well is there are there any charities that you're involved with? Are there any issues that you're tackling right now? Mm, yeah, a lot of my work has been with National Charity League. I'm not sure if any listeners on the call today are familiar with NCL. Um, it's a mother daughter organization that really supports local communities. You know, there's over 250 NCL chapters around the country, and That was when I first really learned that I care about helping people and it was something I wanted to do in my career. So I'm so grateful my mom got me involved in NCL. It really gave me a passion to continue serving. And, you know, the other organization I'll I'll share that really touches my heart is Special Olympics. Um, The people who participate in Special Olympics, I find to be some of the most inspiring. We talked about resilient. I mean, We're talking about people who have, you know, different abilities, whether it's physical or psychological, and they're showing up and giving their best. And I just find that so inspiring to be a part of and to bear witness to. So 
if anybody's listening to this and gets a chance to volunteer with Special Olympics someday, go do it. Question I have for you too, as you know, moving forward, I would make a case that with all your success and all your accomplishments, you have an extremely supportive spouse to, you know, help you in this journey that you're on. What has your relationship been like as you've become more successful and you've progressed with your brand and your business? Mm, I do have such a supportive spouse. I'm so, so grateful for him. Uh, You know, he has always been so supportive, not just of me as a female entrepreneur, but I'd really call him a feminist in the sense that he's very supportive of um, women, you know, us finding our voices and showing up confidently in spaces. He has just been such an advocate for me, which really means the world to me. I think all men should be that way. Um, And he's just, he's really been a huge encourager to me. I think we really are each other's um, teammates with that, you know, and, and I hope that for everybody that they have a spouse that encourages them to be bold, to be fearless, to go for it. Um, I think we all need that person in our corner. And, you know, for our our women listening to the call today as well, um, and for the men as well, I just encourage you, if you meet somebody that inspires you, whether it's a mentor or somebody you want to date, you go up to them and make that happen. You know, I when I met my husband, I asked him out on the first date. Like, I I always believe that if you see something that you want, you meet somebody who you want, feel a connection with, you go for it. Don't wait for somebody to approach you. And I think that really applies to business and our personal relationships. And uh, I'm really glad that I had the courage to do that because 10 years later, it's still working out pretty well. And with that, we'll end the podcast. What a great way to end it with that note. Oh, well, thanks for having me on, Dan. So glad to get to share some time with you today. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And ladies and gentlemen, that was episode seven with Dr. Lauren Cook. Thank you for joining.